Hello, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Creedal Catholic. Creedal Catholic is a Catholic theology and apologetics podcast that is faithful to the magisterium and dedicated to the mission of the new evangelization. We're a part of the Vernacular Podcast Network, and if you'd like to support us or find out more about the other shows on our network, head to patreon.com slash vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Patreon.com slash vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to another episode of Creedal Catholic. We're very excited today to be joined by Hannah Brockhaus, and she's coming to us live from Rome, Italy. She's been covering the Amazon Synod. She is in Rome as a journalist for the Catholic News Agency, and she's been doing this since 2016 for the Catholic News Agency. In 2018, in fact, she got to travel with Pope Francis to the World Meeting of Families, which sounds like a great trip. Um, and she also went uh, went to Lebanon during Christmas 2018 to uh, cover uh, refugees and Christianity in the Middle East. So she's the senior Rome correspondent for Catholic News Agency, a native of Omaha, Nebraska, but a Rome transplant now. And Hannah, welcome to Creedal Catholic. Thank you so much. We're really excited to have you here. And I'm excited to talk about the Amazon Synod, which is obviously the big event that's been happening in Rome for the past month. But before we get to all that, I have to ask, how amazing is it to live in Rome? I love that city. Yeah, it is amazing. It's a huge blessing to live in this city, you know, especially as a Catholic. Um, I'm sure any Catholics who have traveled here know, filled with churches and um, just religious events that we get to be a part of. That's really neat experience. Do you have a favorite Italian food? Oh, um... I really like the traditional Roman pasta, like Roman pasta dishes. Um, I think everybody likes carbonara and amatriciana and those. So maybe those are my favorite. But I mean, all Italian food is pretty much amazing. Yeah, (laughs) I uh, I was visiting Kevin in Denver actually a couple weeks ago, and Kevin took me to this great place. What was it called, Kevin Parisi? Parisi. It's a it's a it's a small little taste of Italy in the heart of Denver, and it was probably the best Italian food I've ever had, at least outside of Italy, because I've been to Rome once, and the food was amazing. But this place wow. was a this place was a throwback. Yeah, I work with Italians, and sometimes we have work trips in the U.S. And one of our favorite things to do is to take Italians to Italian restaurants in the U.S. <laughs> oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> And we get to hear about all the little points of inauthenticity and, you know, and what there's chicken in this white sauce, you know. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I'm glad to hear that there's some good places. Yeah, I defer to Kevin uh, and his expertise because his his mom's side of the family is all Italian. So I think he knows a good pasta when he has it. But even more importantly, this place, Parisi, has an Italian proprietor. And uh, he seems very Italian. So I think it's pretty authentic. But but if you're ever in Denver, you'll need to check it out. It's called Parisi. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, let's talk about the Amazon Synod. I'm thinking that this was obviously a month-long event in Rome. And there were there was a working document beforehand that we've mentioned on this podcast. And then the, the final Synod had some conclusions or recommendations, I should say, to the Holy Father, Pope Francis. And he's expected to sort of um, respond to those uh, in an apostolic exhortation that I think is coming out around Christmas time. But Hannah, if you can, can you give you know a one or two minute overview for some of our listeners who might not have been following all the news surrounding the Amazon Synod? What is it? Uh, why was it convened? What are some of the key recommendations coming out of it? 
Right. So the Amazon Synod took place this month. It was about three weeks long and it was a big meeting of bishops, essentially. Um, You know, synod assemblies are things that popes can call together in Rome. Um, And this one was what's called a special assembly. There are different types. A special assembly is usually called for when the topic is about a region of the world. Um, There's been a past one on Africa, for example. Pope Francis called this one on specifically the Amazon region, which um, is an area in South America, which covers about nine countries, so, um, or reaches into, you know, nine countries. So it's quite large. It follows the, the, um, Amazon basin more or less. And, um, and he, so he, this one was mainly with bishops from that region basically is what kind of makes it different from other synods where bishops from all parts of the world are represented. So this time it was mostly bishops from that region. Many of the bishops and cardinals who lead departments in the Vatican, for example, and then a few others with expertise. And then um, in addition to bishops at a synod, there are other experts who are asked to take part. There are people called auditors, which in this case were many um, indigenous men and women or um, religious men and women who, who take part in the discussions. And the reason it was called is just to address some of the pastoral concerns of the Amazon and the church in that region. And so um, that's what the three weeks were spent doing. Like you said, there was a working document prepared in advance. Um, There was a lot of discussion with bishops and with Catholics and others in the Amazon. What are their concerns? What are their questions? What, What would they like to see? being addressed by the Holy Father and by the Holy See. And um, and then they have this meeting. They meet for three weeks, morning and afternoon. There's prayer. People present on certain topics. There's discussion groups. And then at the end, another document is produced. And that document is, like you said, again, a set of kind of recommendations for the Pope to take into consideration with, you know, what he wants to do to move forward to address the problems in the Amazon. So um, now we are just waiting to see, you know, what the Pope decides to do. Often uh, the Pope will write what's called a post-synodal apostolic exhortation, just a big letter basically from the Pope. And, um, and Pope Francis has said he would like to do that. He doesn't have to do that, but he said he would like to do that and he'd like to do it soon. We don't know for sure that it will happen soon. He said, you know, obviously he wants time to think and then there's the time to actually write it. Um, but that's basically what we're going to see. It might come out by the end of the year. That's what the Pope said he would like to do. So, yeah, for, for our, you know, some of our listeners who have been a part of some of our previous episodes uh so we talk a lot about um, encyclicals so papal encyclicals which are uh, another form of apostolic letter so uh, just for means of familiarity an exhortation is another uh, type of papal document uh, in slightly lower dignity than in in encyclical Uh, so when you look at the kind of three most common forms of uh, papal encyclical letters you have the apostolic constitutions then your encyclical letters and then your exhortations, those are kind of the three uh, in terms of the order of dignity. So what Hannah is mentioning in apostolic exhortation is a you know a common document that comes out of some of these synods. Uh, but 
so that's basically what we're we're going to be looking for in, in probably the coming months. Zach, you said is is what we're expecting. Yeah, I, I, for some reason I was thinking by Christmas time, but Hannah, thanks for the clarification that we don't actually know the date. Maybe mm-hmm. by the end of the year, but I guess we'll just see how how long Pope Francis wants to take. Right, and synodality is something that is, uh, you know, it's kind of has an ancient tradition, but it's a fairly modern institution. Really, the synod as it exists in its modern form was instituted by Paul VI uh, shortly after the close of the Vatican Council. He wrote a, an apostolic letter, uh, Apostolic Solicitudo, which was the uh, the letter that established the modern synod. But while popes since uh, Paul VI have used the synod, I think, uh, Hannah, maybe you have some insight into this. Pope Francis has really made synodality uh, kind of a central element of his papacy, and he wrote uh, an apostolic constitution, I think about a year ago, that was Episcopalis Communio, where he really expanded um, kind of the dignity and role of the the synod within the uh, overall kind of deliberative body of the church. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, definitely in the last few years, even there has been an increase of discussion or use of the, the term synodality. And that was seen again in this synod. Absolutely. So let's talk about that a little bit more and maybe more particularly about this synod. But I think as Kevin, you just pointed out, this is this Amazon synod is going on or was going on against the backdrop of a, a move towards synodality. I think some, not all, but some, uh, I'm thinking here mostly of the German bishops conference, want to use this move towards synodality to be able to have more autonomy to make changes in their own uh, their own province, if that's the right word. Um, but this, this Amazon synod was, like you said, Hannah, addressing a local issue in the Amazon. And the issue there is that, you know, the, ch- the church needs to do a better job at reaching the people in the Amazon. And that's a, cl- a clear urgent need, and all of us can recognize that that's a really good thing. But there are other things about this synod that were pretty controversial, and there were there are many, and I think I think these claims have some merit. Many who said that um, there were there were certain people in the church, especially Europeans, who were trying to co-opt this synod and basically expand some changes for the broader church based on the particular needs of the Amazon region. Is that an accurate characterization, Hannah? Yeah, I think. Um there absolutely have been some bishops who have said that if certain things are allowed in the sin or allowed in the Amazon because of this synod, um, that they would follow through in their in their regions. You know that if, for example, the Pope were to allow um, women to become some sort of permanent deacon, if there were to be some sort of female diaconate, that they would just start ordaining women um, in their own area. So there are definitely people or bishops, I should say, leaders of the church who um, have, I guess, their own ideas of what the church should be. And that's not uncommon, obviously. People will have their agendas. And so I think that was certainly present in this synod. Um, Like it's been at other recent synods as well. There, There are people who have their vision of what they think the church should be and they see the synod perhaps as a way to kind of get that enacted, whether that's really what can happen, you know, or that that's what the synod is for is another debate, obviously. And I think most people who really understand um, what a synod assembly is understand that 
it's not that it's not um i mean the pope himself says it's not a, a parliament where everyone comes in and and just you know the majority vote for what they want however because the final document is voted on i think a lot of people can get confused about that because you see the bishops at the synod vote on what go you know what stays in the final document that's drafted and when that comes out you see those those recommendations and it can definitely feel like like that it is about a majority um despite this sort of um emphasis by by pope francis and some others who have tried to say no 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 it's not you know it's not about that um so um yeah so that's what i wanted to say is just that um the controversies are there i think in part of in part because of that kind of agenda seeking by some people yeah, that makes sense. I think it's also important to note, I mean, there are a couple of things. One, as you and Kevin have both pointed out, this is not a this is not a church council. This is not an ecumenical council, so it doesn't have it doesn't have weight even in the same sense that a, a council does. So, it's, you know, the working or the conclusion concluding document is really a set of recommendations to Pope Francis, and then Pope Francis can publish an exhortation based on that. Right. But even even as Kevin pointed out, an exhortation is still not anything approaching a council. So I think there's that to keep in mind. The second is that, as you mentioned, Hannah, this this document was voted on, but this was not voted on by the global church or by the entire, uh, you know, uh, magisterium of bishops. This was voted on by the attendees of the synod. And it was really a very small number. I think you probably have the exact number, but I think it was less than 200 bishops, most of whom, the vast majority of whom were all local to the Amazon region. So this is a very small cross-section of the church voting on a document pertaining to issues related to a very small cross-section of the church. Right. And as, as Hannah's you know, already mentioned, this was an extraordinary assembly of the synod. This is, so in, there are three different types of synods that the, the Pope can call. One is the general assembly, which is typically addressing uh, issues of the universal church. You have extraordinary assemblies, which are kind of out of the normal synodal rhythm they're out of uh, kind of the normal pace of those and they're typically called to address a matter for the universal church that is of extraordinary urgency and then you have what this synod was which was the you know an extraordinary assembly as hannah uh, pointed out which is one. a special right sorry a special uh, which is specific to a region um, so of course uh, you know as uh, as popes have called out in the past including john paul the second saint john paul the second that even some of these um, special assemblies, and by their nature, they're addressing kind of universal concerns. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, anything that applies to one particular region is automatically going to uh, end up being universal uh, law of the church. And I think uh, it's also noteworthy that with the final document, the Pope does have the the option to accept the final document uh, in its com- completeness uh, and at least all the indications so far that uh, Pope Francis does not have the intention of just adopting this this document as an article of magisterium that he is planning to write an exhortation which means he is most likely planning to accept some elements of the the recommendations of the synod and probably reject others yeah that's right so I want to talk a little bit more about these three 
specific recommendations in the concluding document that have been very controversial. The one that you already mentioned, Hannah, is the ordination of women as deacons in some in some capacity to the permanent diaconate. The second is the ordination of married men to the priesthood. And the specific recommendation, I think, is concerning viri probati, which I think is basically, you know, older proven men who are, uh, you know, maybe have already raised their families, et cetera, um, but are recognized in their communities as men of good character, but married. And then the third is the creation of an Amazonian right. So do I have those three accurately characterized, Anna, first before we talk about them? Yeah, I'd say that those three were the the major points. Yeah. So I think the the female diaconate one is very concerning to a lot of observers because they're thinking, as you mentioned, Anna, well, if the if they do this in the Amazon, then other bishops elsewhere elsewhere will do this. The married priest one, I think people see as a as a broader threat to clerical celibacy, which is a gift to the church, even though it's largely misunderstood, especially by secular media from the outside looking in. And then the third, the Amazonian right, I think there's a concern that the um, the truth of the church will just be watered down in an Amazonian right. And this concern is despite the fact that we have multiple rights in the church. I mean, most of us in the Western world, for sure, are, are familiar with the Latin right and attend the Latin right. But there are there are a variety of other rights, including the Byzantine right and even the Anglican use um, right, which uh, does already have married men, by the way. So um, I think some of these concerns are overblown, and I don't want to totally echo them. But I also think there are some concerning elements to these because we have seen other bishops, largely European, who want to, you know, jump on these changes as an opportunity to make some of the the changes that they themselves have. And I also think that some of the things we saw uh, concerning the synod, in and around the synod, um, reflect the uh, or sort of validate the concern that an Amazonian liturgy could incorporate some some non-Christocentric elements into it that could water down the gospel. Yeah. Well, that last point, like, well, let's come back to that. Um, what you were just making, but on the other three topics of, of kind of a bit of controversy around the Synod, I mean, on, on the Amazonian rights, I think there's some concern that how that was discussed during the Synod, um, and I give some credit to my boss, J.D. Flynn, because he's a canon lawyer, so he understands this stuff a little bit better than I do. But there's some concern that there was maybe a confusion of terms as well between rite and liturgy, since those, you know, aren't the same thing. Um, and an enculturated liturgy to have kind of a, a, liturg- a Catholic liturgy in the Amazon that reflects the Amazonian culture, which is something that our church does. Um, that 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 um, is not the same as an Amazonian right, which is kind of to use the terms from you know these rights we have that come from the Apostolic Church. So just to clarify, there, so would it, would an Amazonian liturgy look like I don't know an a Eucharistic prayer five that incorporates some of these elements, whereas an Amazonian right would be an entirely new set of um, a, a new um, what's the word I'm looking for a new mass essentially. You know, I'm not a liturgist, so <laughs> or an expert on that, so so I'm not sure. But that was one of the questions, I think. So okay. I'm not sure if that was really necessarily answered. Actually, I really don't feel like that was necessarily answered satisfactorily in the synod and in the final conclusions. But that, but that was basically the question, you know, because that was another one of the talking points was enculturation and how um, how does the church would you know the church has 
it's always had a tradition of enculturation, but what does that look like in modern times? And then that was also being debated about um, how do we separate that from historical colonialism, which maybe I think there was some conflating of the two. So I think we have to be careful. Um, in the Senate, I think there was some conflating of colonialism and enculturation in, um, you know, preaching the gospel and missionary activity. And I don't think those were always together. Um, but that was, that, that was the question anyway. And so um, obviously more would need to be clarified about what is an Amazonian liturgy, liturgy or what even is an Amazonian rite if that, if that could even be a solution. Um, there has to be a lot of, a lot of clarification first. And that seems, it, it seems like that's a, a particular fear or maybe not fear, but concern of Pope Francis uh, is that, you know, this part of the world has such a history of you know, colonialism from, from Europe and definitely and rightfully so a um, kind of revulsion away from colonialism. And it seems that uh, a particular focus of this synod is trying to present Catholicism in a manner that you know, avoids that history of colonialism while um, without without really changing the truth of the church, but presents it in a way that is acceptable and inviting to a culture that, um, frankly, because of, of the past and its history, has a natural um, uh, kind of aversion from uh, kind of the, the Western imperial or colonial history. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's, um, that is one of the real challenges. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right, Kevin. But I also don't want to gloss over the Synod because the Synod is addressing real challenges and real problems. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean, and I know you're not saying this, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the suggested solutions are the best solutions. And so, you know, in a region that has been scarred by colonialism and might see some of the aspects of the church as vestiges of the colonialism, we have to be obviously very careful about never thinking that Jesus Christ is a vestige of colonialism or that oh, some or that somehow we can we can improve the accessibility of the gospel by by um, you know by making the church or the the liturgy syncretistic and incorporating uh, existing pagan elements you know there there is truth and we can recognize you know that the church claims all that is truth and we can recognize that some of what the the people in the Amazon the indigenous people in the Amazon believe is grounded in truth but you know what, what what indigenous religion in the Amazon is not is Christianity, and I think the fear, and I do think it's justified in some instances, given some of the bishops' public comments that were participating in the synod. The fear is that this will be watered down. That is one of the genuine criticisms, I think, of the synod is that there are, like you said, these real problems and um, challenges in the Amazon region, but, and, and several participants as well in the synod said they felt like they, that those real problems weren't being properly addressed by the synod, um, that there was kind of this undue focus on cert just certain solutions instead of thinking um, in a broader way about being, you know, creative about how we bring the gospel to that area. And that maybe there was also a bit of a, like almost an overcorrection instead of, um, you know, the church doesn't believe in forcing 
Catholicism or belief on anyone, but it meant that maybe it means that maybe now some people are trading even an invitation to the gospel, an invitation to follow Christ for just, you know, ignoring that entirely or for just accepting whatever it is people like, however people are now, what their beliefs are now, this sort of um, accompaniment language that we use, but accompaniment without any sort of guidance, um, to the church or preach or real preaching of the gospel. So that's, a, I think, a genuine criticism of this synod. Um, and, you know, like we were talking about some of what, what happened was then you take some, again, real problems in the area, one of them being a real, real shortage of priests and the fact that many people don't have regular access to the sacraments because of that shortage. And there becomes just a focus on this one possible solution of ordaining these very probati. I heard that um, in the, you know, in the final document, they kind of talked about maybe like there are some men who are already um, married men who are already permanent deacons. What if we ordained them, you know, to the priesthood um, in order to open up access to the sacraments. Um, And so there was just a focus on that um, with kind of, kind of to the detriment of neglecting what what I heard some participants say, which is, you know, what we need is more vocations to the priesthood in the area. Just, you know, and we want to foster as well vocations of the indigenous people. I mean, because we also have missionaries. So maybe that's another solution is maybe we need to send more missionary priests from areas that have more vocations into areas that don't have them. Maybe we, um, we need to foster vocations locally in the area. Well, how do we do that? I mean, that's also about personal examples of holiness, personal examples of of vocations, and um, and of people striving to to live lives after Christ. So, um, yeah, that's that's I think where there was some concern again about people pushing an agenda, you know, of, of the married priesthood without thinking like, is there a way that we can preserve this practice, um, this discipline of the church of priestly celibacy while also addressing the problem of the shortage of priests? You know, was that, I don't know how much that was really discussed. Well, I want to go back real quick to something you, you just said at the beginning of your comments there. And that was about how, some people who were in the synod were disappointed at how the synod didn't really seem to be addressing in a real way the actual issues that it was called to address. And I think one of the ironies to me of this synod is that it is called, as Kevin pointed out, to correct some of the the vestiges of colonialism where the church has has failed adequately to reach the Amazon people. But from the outside, it looks like the Amazon synod has then been co-opted by largely progressive and mostly European forces in the church to try to achieve, achieve some of their ends. So this, this synod that's called to correct colonialism, you know, that, that concerns 200 or so bishops, um, regarding, regarding a, uh, who have jurisdiction over a region of South America, um, is then co-opted by Europeans to try to make the changes to the church that they want to make. Is that an accurate read? Do you think? Yes, I think maybe in part, you know, I think that's part of it. Um, I'd say like a lot of, a lot of the maybe more controversial things 
coming out of the synod were also espoused by bishops of Brazil and of the um, of the Amazon or from Brazil, but maybe other parts of Brazil that aren't part of the Amazon region. Um, and I wouldn't exclude those from being European mentalities necessarily. So I wouldn't say it's all European or not all European. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, but yeah, certainly that was an aspect of it. I mean, um, there's an element of it that is also um, kind of, for some reason, I mean, I don't know why, kind of an attitude. It seems to be an attitude um, just in that area as well, you know? Yeah, Hannah, you've, you've, you brought up, uh, I think, a really great, kind of got to the core of what this and it really is all about when, when you talked about getting you know, more priests out to these regions where they just don't have access to the sacraments. And really, when I, when I read the documents, when I read uh, kind of the preparation, it seems that really the core, the whole issue at stake here is how do we bring Christ to people who are in a disadvantaged position to, to have him brought into their lives? And this is, is so fascinating to me because this is an, uh, an issue that has been at the core of the church since her, since her founding, uh, the missionary nature of the church. And it was of, again, particular emphasis, I think, in Vatican II when uh, the kind of call it the modern Catholic Church was looking at ways to better engage with modernity and with this new culture um, that was emerging in the 1950s and 60s. And then one of the great documents that came out of Vatican II was Christus Dominus, which is you know, the constitution or, or the decree concerning the episcopate and the life of bishops. And you mentioned uh, how one thing that maybe didn't get a lot of focus was other ways that, uh, as, as opposed to kind of changing rules surrounding celibacy or rules around uh, ordination of, of different categories of people, or different groups of people, is kind of the missionary nature of the priesthood. And it's interesting because right in Christus Dominus, when they're uh, kind of talking about, uh, the council is talking about how important it is to reach these disadvantaged parts of the world. Uh, one of the lines right out of Christus Dominus is that bishops should consider as much as possible uh, sending some of their own priests to the disadvantaged missions and dioceses to exercise the sacred ministries. And it's just so interesting to me that uh, that didn't get, it doesn't seem like at least that got much focus at this synod, the idea of, um, you know, Rome is kind of full of, full of priests and maybe there's an opportunity. I, I guess it's kind of unfair for me sitting in the comfort of my my home in Denver to suggest that that priests go out um, and and go to these disadvantaged parts of the world, but it just seems interesting that that didn't really get much focus. I don't think. No, I think you're totally right, though, Kevin, because the the like you said, the whole priestly function is missionary and outlook. And look at all of the original apostles, who almost all, maybe with the exception of James, who is the bishop of Jerusalem, all traveled far beyond the reaches of their their home. And now the expectation is, if you're a priest, you you will, you know, enter a vocation unless you're in a, a religious order that does missions. You enter a vocation in your diocese and you stay in your diocese, and maybe you do a little stint in Rome to get your doctorate, but then you go back to your diocese and you're in your diocese the whole time. So there isn't a missionary outlook in the way that there certainly used to be, and probably in a way that there should be. And maybe that would alleviate some of these problems in regions like the Amazon that are austere and remote and don't have enough priests to administer the sacraments to a people that is being evangelized. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think we need to pray, obviously, obviously for absolutely. vocations of the priesthood, and then we need to pray for, you know, vocations as well to missionary priesthood. 
Um, and I mean, that was, I do want to say that that was talked about during the Senate, you know, obviously again, maybe it didn't hit the spotlight, um, in the same way other things did, but that that was mentioned as, as a possibility again, yeah, of, of where there's maybe a greater concentration of priests trying to send that out. So that was, that was a solution that was, um, proposed. I think it's, it's particularly difficult and it strikes me that, um, in order for there to be a strong and, and stable priesthood in any part of the world, and the Amazon being just one example, that one of the strongest instruments to that end is the example of a strong and flourishing and holy priestly life. And um, having good priests who are you know from various parts of the world uh, demonstrating that holy life, it seems like um, in a region like the Amazon, maybe that is is not not the cure-all but certainly it seems like one potential avenue to encourage more of those vocations in that part of the world um, not dismissing at all you know a lot of the cultural challenges that are particular to the region but um, it seems like one one powerful instrument to me yeah well and we are speaking on the feast of all saints day so i think it's great to talk about um you know the intrinsicness of of the universal call to holiness and that we need holy people, not just priests and a holy laity as well. I think that was something else that um, some people were concerned about, maybe not concerned about, but um, something that people brought up is that as important as priests are, as important as access to the sacraments like confession and the Eucharist are, there are many places in the world where missionaries brought the faith there but there weren't many priests or any priests in some cases, and the lay people kept the faith alive there. So this, I think it's also important to note that even if there are no priests, you can have vibrant, faith-filled Catholic people who preserve the faith, who live the faith um, until such a time when it can be, you know, um, there can be more access to priests. So I think that's just another another important point on that issue that um, maybe wasn't discussed as much, which is kind of sad with all the discussion about clericalism that's going on mm-hmm. in the church. You know, let's, you know, talk about holy, um, holy lay people and holy religious. There were, it seems like there are many religious women that are serving the Amazon as well. So um, their contribution was, uh, was noted. So we have got a few minutes left here, and before we go, I think we have to talk about this Pachamama or Pacamama episode. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened there, Hannah? Because this is a very, to me, bizarre incident. I thought your boss, J.D. Flynn, had a good analysis of um, kind of some of the the problems in communicating what was going on by uh, Vatican officials. But can you tell us a little bit just about what happened, especially for our listeners who haven't heard anything about this yet? Yeah, I can try to recap it really quickly. Um, There were some events happening um, that were sort of connected to the Synod, but they weren't the Synod exactly. Um, So these events, some of them um, were happening um, nearby the Vatican, all throughout the Synod. And then some of the people involved in those events were also involved in like just little aspects of the Synod, like the opening day, there was an opening prayer and there was a procession from the Basilica to the hall where they were holding the Synod. And so 
um, at these events, at many of them, there were these carved wooden images of what appears to be, you know, a nude pregnant woman, um, like a, a nude pregnant indigenous woman. There were um, a lot of these carved images and they were showing up at, like I said, various events um, also before the Synod. And some people just had concerns about them um, from the beginning because in a ceremony which happened in the Vatican Gardens a few days before the Synod started, it appeared like people were bowing down to these. So they started to be noticed. Um, they were also, some of them were in a church called Santa Maria in Traspontina near the Vatican. And um, journalists were asking some questions as well during press conferences, um, just trying to understand what they were. And there was just a lot of um, back and forth. Some people said it's Our Lady of the Amazon, a version of the Virgin Mary. Um, other people were saying it's this Pachamama, which I guess is um, kind of um, an indigenous deity, if I understand from it's the like Mother Andean Earth, region. Right? Yeah, it's kind of Mother Earth. And I, I believe originates from in the Andes. Um. And then, you know, other people were kind of answering, saying it's, oh, it's, it's just a symbol of life. It's um, a symbol of, of, of birth, you know, these sorts of things. And so there was just confusion um, about why the image, if it wasn't Christian, why it was um, in a church, why it was part of what were ostensibly um, Christian prayer services or, or liturgies. So there erupted a big debate about that. Um, and I'd say, you know, um, there were some extreme views as well. And this all kind of culminated when some people broke into the church early one morning, they filmed themselves, um, going in, I should say they going into the church, the church was open, but um, going into the church and taking some of these images and then throwing them into the Tiber river. So that, that's just kind of, um, sparked the controversy even further, as you can imagine. And some people agreed with the action. Some people disagreed with the action and, um, that became really a, a central part of what people were talking about at the Synod. And I think um, the reason, part of the reason for this, besides, I mean, maybe ignoring some of the more reactionary comments on either side of the political spectrum, because I think those were there as well. I think the concern some people had was just that um, there didn't seem to be a clear knowledge from organizers and people in charge of the Synod and communications of the Synod about what it really was and maybe also a lack of concern for why it was important to know what it was and, um, and to clarify that it wasn't pagan. And in the end, it seems that the conclusion is more or less that it wasn't really a Christian. It's not a Christian symbol. It's not a, an easily recognizable Christian symbol. Um, and so the concern is that we're allowing non-Christian 
symbols to be displayed in Christian places and perhaps even um, treated in a way that would be a sort of idol worship. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And a lot of your points were mentioned in the J.D. Flynn analysis, which is just that, you know, the Vatican officials could have done a better job at first determining what these were and then communicating that because we were getting conflicting answers from various Vatican um, officials. I think that, as you mentioned, there are some there are some extreme reactions. And, you know, I want to uh, I want to say this in in full charity, but. You know, just if any of our listeners listen to Taylor Marshall, for example, I think his reaction was a bit extreme and was, um, <laughs> as it often is. Yeah. I, I uh, so I, I just want to caution listeners who are listening to Taylor Marshall. Um, he doesn't have, and I'm not saying that all of his ideas are bad, but in this sense, I think he was a little bit extreme. And his take was basically that the Pope is promoting idolatry. I think the, the reality is that what we're witnessing here is, well, there are a couple problems with it. One, there's not a clarity about what these things were and clerics who were, you know, prostrating themselves before it were assuming wrongly that it was an image of the Virgin Mary. There were people lower in the Vatican hierarchy that obviously approved the use of these images in um, some sort of, you know, prayer rite, And then the display in St. Maria Transpontina and further somebody in that church approved the you know turning around of pews to face these instead of um, and face away from the blessed sacrament that's just a pretty uh, egregious um, abuse and that means that someone in that church does not have the right understanding of what the eucharist is because if they did they would never do that so this highlights some of the problems up and down the vatican hierarchy where where people don't don't believe or don't understand what the church teaches and don't understand the importance of how to reach uh, reach people who need to be reached by missionaries and say, we can reach you with the gospel, but what we can't do is just is just validate everything that you already worship. We can say that, you know, the, the tendency or desire to worship, the recognition of the wonderful gift of creation and what you call Mother Earth is a gift from God, but it is not God. And what we do here in the Catholic Church is something totally distinctive and different, and we um, we can't just bring your things in here. And I think yeah. I think that that would have been way more clear from the outset. I, the reason I say that people like Taylor Marshall are wrong when saying that the Church promotes idolatry is that this was not the action of the Pope. And I mean, even when these were recovered from the river, I think the Pope then said he apologized to people who were scandalized by the throwing of them in the river, et cetera. And he criticized the people who did throw them in the river. But even then it still wasn't clear if these were, um, if these were, you know, images of Mary or some pagan idol. Yeah. So, um, my best understanding as best as I can kind of puzzle out. So I'm not saying that I'm what necessarily 100% right about this, but what I, best understood by the end of it is, um, and from talking to people connected with the group that was using these, is that they were images that that group brought from the Amazon. And I think, you know, to give the best possible, most like most charitable interpretation on why they brought them was for them, they saw them as a symbol of the indigenous people who are being represented and spoken about in the synod. So that's what they saw it as, as representative of. Um, and, you know, they brought other images, other um, objects, I should say, like a wooden canoe and things of that sort. So I think there's no 
not necessarily a problem with having things that you want to represent indigenous people. And again, the the problem came in when the actions towards the objects was inappropriate. And so that's kind of um, kind of where the the line was crossed. And um, and the fact that this strange symbolism um, wasn't wasn't made clear, like you said. Yeah, and I think. You know, a lot, uh, kind of a word we've used throughout this conversation has been enculturation. And it's a word that is used a lot these days by the Vatican. And it's a word that Pope Francis himself has uh, been very uh, kind of fond of using in the last several years. It's a word that really came out, I think, for the, into the mainstream uh, with his encyclical letter, uh, Evangelii Gaudium, uh, which is his encyclical on a renewed missionary life of the church and he quotes it a lot um, himself in some of his later documents and even some of the homilies in a line that uh, that I've I've really taken out of that because it, it keeps popping up in in new documents is he talks about how uh, the quote is every general principle must be enculturated in order for it to be accepted and I think what we're seeing right now is a tension between that remark as simple as it seems that every general principle must be enculturated and at least a you know a body of people you know frankly one that i would probably include myself in which would say that instead of every the word maybe should be many that there are many general principles that have to be enculturated or should be enculturated but there are perhaps some general principles that cannot and should not be enculturated because by enculturating them and making them specific to one culture, they lose the very dignity which is bestowed upon them by their general nature. And I think that's kind of where we're at with this right now, is trying to, and what the the Synod is doing, what Pope Francis himself is doing, what the Magisterium is doing, is trying to find where is the line between general principles that can and should be enculturated and general principles that are so... um, so foundational to the interior life of the faith in the church that they cannot be bent, they cannot be changed. And I think it's a tension that we're going to see play out over the course of the next several years, at least. Yeah, I think that's well said, Kevin. And um, on the the many principles point, I mean, I think the concern from many, and you said you would, you would include yourself, I would include myself, is that the church is, is sacrificing some elements of this truth that she proclaims that are all important. Um, and you know, I, I want, I, I just think of Paul going into the Areopagus and, you know, people are bowing down to this idol, to an unknown God. And Paul says, I'll tell you who the unknown God is. So he's not, uh, he's not enculturating the Christian message. He's identifying elements of the culture that cry out for a need for the Christian message and then declaring it to them there. And I think the church needs to be really careful about how it does engage and how it proclaims these truths. And I also think that there's some irony in the fact that, um, Pope Francis and many of his supporters have criticized the American church for being very critical of Pope Francis. And I think that you can criticize, rightly so, many American Catholics for being overly critical of Pope Francis. I mean, if you refuse to call him or recognize him as the Pope, you're basically a Sudivacantus at that point. And yet at that, you know, uh, while while criticizing the American church, um, you know, and, and declaring that it's just not Catholic enough, which is potentially true, and at least in, in the instances of many public commentators, um, you can't then go and say that 
you know, the church here needs to be more Amazonian. I think the answer is that the church everywhere needs to be more of the church and um, recognize fundamental principles that, that you know, retain, retain what needs to be retained and reject what needs to be rejected in the cultures in which the church finds itself. Right. And the church, I mean, what the church does and has done throughout history is purify the things of mm-hmm. the world, right? Purify the things of the culture. Not, It's not the same as just adopting cultural things and leaving them as they are and saying, now this is part of the church. So maybe that's part of the problem as well, is really our understanding of what authentic enculturation is and how we authentically incorporate culture into the faith um, versus just a wholesale adoption. Everything is fine just how it is, as it is, you know? Yes, I completely agree with that. And I think that's a great note to end on with your final comments there, Hannah. So thank you so much for joining us on Creedal Catholic. Real quick, I know people can find your work on Catholic News Agency and at Hannah Brockhaus, B-R-O-C-K-H-A-U-S on Twitter. But is there any anywhere else that they can go to find the work that you've done for Catholic News Agency? Those are the best places. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Hope to have you on again sometime soon. I appreciate your insight as a Rome insider and go eat some authentic Roman pasta for us. Thank you. And happy All Saints Day. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Happy (laughs) solemnity to you as well. And to our listeners, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Creedal Catholic. If you have feedback for us, please email Zach, Z-A-C, at creedalcatholic.com or Kevin at creedalcatholic.com. We'll pass along your comments to Hannah if you have things to ask Hannah or things to pass along. But thank you so much for listening. I also want to give a shout out to a recent reviewer of this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Viviana CM. Thank you so much for your kind review and comments. And also thank you to Will and Teresa for being our Patreon sponsors. It's been a pleasure to produce these and we look forward to making more and more content as we go. Thank you so much to Will and Teresa and Viviana CM for your support. All right, until next time, thank you so much for listening to Credo Catholic. God bless you. Thank you.